y'all might need to handle some of these guys up here in the front row. They get a little rowdy. Um, good morning, Christ Community Church. It's good to see you. Good to be here together with you. Sorry that it's under these circumstances. Jeff having surgery this past week, but man, grateful to God for a good praise, record, uh, praise report. Um, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, as a lookout, I see, I know maybe half of you guys, uh, but if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name's Eric, and I am married to my beautiful and heroic selfless wife, Erin, who will be here later. We just made 14 years married this past August. Uh, we have four kids, kiddos, Aiden, who's 11, so if you guys remember, who know me, if you remember Aiden, he's 11, uh, Cameron, who's 9, Ethan, who's 5, and my little baby girl, Lennon, who's two. And I'm on staff at Lakeview Christian Center uh, in New Orleans. started going there in 1999 when I was 15 years old. And Jeff actually was my youth pastor. Jeff and Kathy cared for Aaron and I, uh, helped me through our teenage years, helped me in my formative years of ministry as a youth leader and worship leader, was walking through us in all those years of undone playing. And um, he what. Jeff and Kathy walked alongside Aaron and I through our long and scandalous season of dating. That's a whole other story. Walked through us through our years of engagement, or our year of engagement, and then our eventual marriage. And they, they pastored us through seasons of joy and seasons of difficulty. Kathy was there helping Aaron in the hospital when Aiden was born. And they were there for us with marriage advice and parenting advice. Our questions that we had, they're dear friends of ours. And will always have a very special place in our hearts. So it's, it's just an honor to be able to come and speak to you guys, so many of you that have walked with for years uh, at Lakeview. And I came on staff part-time at Lakeview in 2004. Then you guys can go back in time with me for a second. 2004, came on staff part-time. Aaron and I got married August 2005, uh, right three weeks right before Hurricane Katrina hit. That's another fun story. Then I came on full-time at the church in 2006 as we began to rebuild the church because the church had gotten flooded by Katrina. So, uh, and among other things, like serving administratively in the office and you know, recently just getting to, to begin leading our pivot ministry, which is for 18 and 25-year-olds at the church. In 2012, I was able to take over leading our church in song on Sunday mornings. That was a big loss because the guy who did that before us was incredible and Pastor Matt Mason, uh, I'm just always indebted to that guy as well. Um, but I, I, I got to be able to, to have the responsibility for leading church and song on Sundays. And I'll just take a second to just thank Mark and Ben. And I didn't get to meet Matt. Okay, Matt. Oh, there you are, Matt. Thank you guys for serving us this morning and for the ways that you guys are serving this church uh, on a regular basis. It was just a joy to sing together with you this morning. Singing together each week, it's just so necessary for us. I don't know if you, if you think about that on a regular basis. Have, have you considered that recently? I, I don't know about you, but I, I can just get to Wednesday or Thursday in a week and be so overwhelmed by the cares of the world that when I look into the mirror of my soul, all, all I can seem to see sometimes is just chaos. I can be reminded of every spiritual ditch that I fell into that week, every temptation to doubt God and his word that I chose to believe. I can be disoriented by the insults and hurtful comments others have made about me. 
to be driven to discouragement as I, care, as I compare my life to the life that others seem to be getting to experience, the life I wish I had, as relate to that, the sight of my sin and the suffering that I feel like I'm experiencing can just sink me uh, midweek. And, but when we gather on Sundays, when we come together on Sunday mornings in this room, we sing together, something glorious happens in that moment. I just want to, just want to remind us what is happening then. As, as each of us brings into this room our unique story and struggle, whether we're in a season of spiritual fruitfulness or a season of drought, whether we're carrying with us blessings or burdens, faith or fears, worship, weariness, when we come into this place and we, and we turn our attention to the Lord and we lift up together one unified voice and we cry out in praise to God like we did this morning, we sing, Oh Jesus, I will hide in you the one who bears my burdens with faithful hands that cannot fail. You'll bring me home to heaven. We sing lyrics like that together. Our affections, they're stirred. Our souls are refreshed. And then we can take a look back into that accusing mirror in our souls. And this time when we, when we look at ourselves, we, we don't see this frazzled, exhausted lunatic all filthy and tattered with sin and suffering. We, we see Jesus we see his power through the Spirit. We see ourselves as God the Father sees us, as sanctified saints clothed in the blood-washed, pure white robes of the righteousness of his Son, Jesus. And what we experience in that moment, week after week together, we experience peace in that moment. Peace with God. And the peace of God. Peace. It's such a soothing word isn't it? You hear that word and, and you, just, you just want it. Whatever it is, I, I just got to have that thing, that peace. I mean, it's got to be one of the deepest human longings of the soul to just be at peace. We think if we could just experience some peace, life, life would be just so different, wouldn't it? But what is peace? What exactly is that thing? Why do we want it so much? Why does it seem to be so elusive? Can anyone actually even find it here on this earth? And if so, where do we look for it? There's an ancient Hebrew word for peace that you've probably heard before. It's the word shalom. Actually, I, I looked this up. At the beginning of Aladdin, uh, the old one, the cartoon, um, Robin Williams' little merchant character, he says, salam and good evening. So I think, I think that's kind of the same word. It was a word that they would use as, as a greeting. They would say, peace be with you, basically with this word shalom. It's a rich, dense word packed with meaning. It includes words like calm, tranquility, order, relational harmony, well-being, wholeness, a sense of flourishing. As one author put it, shalom is the way things ought to be. I think that's a helpful way to think about the word peace, the way things ought to be. Because that's really what we want in life. We just want things to be the way they ought to be. And when things aren't going the way they ought to be going, then we become restless or frustrated or anxious. Or worse, we get bitter and angry. In fact, I think this pursuit of peace, the pursuit of the way things ought to be, is what often causes the conflict that we experience among ourselves. We become willing to engage in conflict with others, even others that we love most, over the way, things that, over the way we think things ought to go. I, I know this kind of shalom-seeking conflict happens all the time in my household with things like where the TV remote ought to be when I want to turn the TV on 
or whether pretzel crumbs ought to be found inside my bedsheets, or what temperature the house ought to be kept at at night, which, if you're wondering, is just slightly warmer than the Arctic tundra because we ought not to sweat in our sleep. Thank you. I, hear, I see that hand. If only I could just get everyone else in my house to see from my perspective just how much shalom our house could actually be experiencing if everyone would just do the things the way I think that they ought to be done. But there's just a problem with this way of thinking. And if we set ourselves up to think this way, we're going to have a big problem. Because even if I could manage to get everyone in my household to do everything I wanted them to do, or this is really what I want, I want the rest of the world to, to live the way that I think, uh, that I think ways things ought to be, I'd still never be able to actually find shalom. And that's because there will always be at least one person in the universe who will never bow to the way I think things ought to be. In fact, he has never bowed to anyone, and he will never bow to anyone. You know why? Because he is Yahweh, the Lord. I am. Yeah, him. The one Colossians, you know, we saw earlier, the one Colossians tells us the firstborn of all creation, who is before all things, and in whom all things hold together, the preeminent one. Or, as we'll see him called in our text this morning, Yahweh Shalom which means the Lord is peace. But before we turn our text, would you just join me in a moment, a brief moment of prayer, just asking God for his help as we receive the preaching of his word. Oh, Father, I, I desperately want to serve these people this morning. I want you to minister yourself to them. Lord, I, I know I'm weak. Uh, Lord, but I'm willing. I, I want you to use my words so that they point to you, to you alone. And Lord, I, I pray that as we hear your word, as we hear it preached, Lord, would you give faith to us to, to trust you in all the varied seasons that we find ourselves in. Speak to us today, we pray. Amen. Right, let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, which is the seventh book in the Bible. Start at the beginning. Right after Joshua, right before the book of Ruth, the Old Testament. And as you're turning, or opening your app and whatever you're doing, however you're getting to the Bible, uh, I just want to say that if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you might be wondering why I would choose such a depressing and gory book to preach from on the topic of peace, and that's not a bad question. Uh, just rest assured, we're not going to go into all those kind of more gruesome sections of Judges, and there, there are plenty of those. Uh, we'll spend most of our time in chapter 6, so you can go ahead and turn to chapter 6. We're going to focus our attention on a man named Gideon, who's probably one of the more famous judges in Israel's history. He was a judge appointed and sent by God to rescue the nation of Israel from the oppression of their enemies in the land of Canaan. You probably remember the story of him using a piece of fleece to ask and then re-ask God to give him a sign, or the story of the battle that Gideon fought and won with only 300 warriors using their voices and a few lamps hidden under clay, pot, clay pots. But this morning we're going to look at how we're first introduced to Gideon in the book of Judges. And so to kind of get our bearings, at the end of the book, right before Judges, the book of Joshua, Joshua, the, the leader of Israel, had just led the Israelite people into the promised land. They fought a bunch of battles and had begun to take over the promised land, but God had given them very, very clear instructions. God tells them this in Joshua 23. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, 
turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, remember Yahweh, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. But alas, the Israelites do exactly what God warned them not to do. They do win some strategic battles, but they allow the Canaanites to remain with them in the promised land and thereby fail to fully obey God's intention for them. And that sets them up for many difficult and devastating years of suffering at the hands of their enemies in the land of Canaan. God is so gracious. Time and time again, God would have pity on his people and offer them respite through a judge who would liberate them from the hands of their enemies. And and we just see this cycle in the book of Judges. If you read through that book, you see this cycle repeat itself over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's in the midst, and it's in the midst of one of these cycles that we're finding our story this morning. They've been enjoying, the Israelites have been enjoying a period of 40 peace-filled years in the land. They've just come off of some oppression by this, uh, this guy named Sisera, and then Deborah, and Barak, and this lady named Jael, who wasn't even a believer in Yahweh, uh, does a tent peg in the dude's head. I don't know if you've read that story. It's a, it's a pretty doozy. It's a doozy. Um, but, so they've been joined this period of 40 years after that oppression, and then Judges 6, 1 we come to, and it tells us that the Israelites still haven't learned their lesson. Look at Judges 6, 1, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian. So the Midianites, they were plunderers. I don't know if you've seen the movie A Bug's Life, uh, but they're kind of like the grasshoppers, like Hopper and his guys. They, they come to your house, they're bullies, they, they literally devour everything that they see in their sight. They'd steal your livestock, they'd eat all your produce, then they'd just come back next year and grab the next new crop. And they did this over and over again for seven long years. So naturally, the Israelites, they're they're terrified of these people. When the Midianites would come and make their annual pit stop, the the Israelites would seek refuge in the mountains and caves, setting up strongholds there and living as cavemen until the Midianites would get bored and move on to the next town. During these years, it, it must have been just a life of constant fear and frustration, difficulty and destruction. It's definitely not a peaceful life. And then we come to Judges verse 11, Judges 6 verse 11, and this is our passage for this morning. Let's, let's read this together, starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Aphra, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So let's make sure we have the scene set in our minds. Remember, it's anything but peaceful. 
getting spreading, I mean, spending yet another exhausting day hiding at the bottom of a wine press while beating the chaff off the wheat he's been secretly harvesting so as not to be seen by the Midianites, which, side note, I've never harvested grain, but apparently this is an extremely difficult way to do this at the bottom of a wine press with no wind and all. But Gideon's no doubt tired and selfless, sweating, sore. He's been through seven years of days like this day, and he's got no end in sight. I can imagine he'd just be tempted to think thoughts like, this is the promised land for crying out loud. It's supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey. This was to be the peaceful place our nation had longed for for centuries. Where is this Yahweh our fathers told us about? And enter the angel of the Lord. The Bible describes a much different attitude for this character in our story who calm, calmly enters the scene and gently nestles down in the shade of a cashew tree on Gideon's father's property. But who is this angel of the Lord? Many theologians believe his appearance to be a theophany or a visible manifestation of God to man. Tim Keller gives us some insight into his identity. It's a quote. He says, There's remarkable mystery and tension in all the biblical descriptions of who the angel is. On the one hand, we're told the angel said, verse 12 and 20, but we're also told the Lord said in verses 14, 16, and 18, Perhaps the angel is a communication channel, a kind of divine speakerphone. But then we run into verse 14, and it says, The Lord turned to him, to Gideon, and said, Oh, so the Lord turned to him and said, And Tim Keller says, This is remarkable and confusing. This figure is the angel of the Lord, and yet also the Lord. What does this mean? This is one of the mysteries of the Old Testament, which is impossible to understand without the new. If there is one God, how can he both be in heaven having sent this visible figure and at the same time be the visible figure if this was simply God come in human form why doesn't it just say he is the Lord rather than also one sent by the Lord because the word angel means messenger the only explanation that makes sense is that we have here an indication that our one God is nonetheless multi-personal we have a deep hint of the Trinity there's good reason to see this figure as God the Son his concern, even then, was to bring salvation and peace to his people. I think that's a really helpful insight. So the angel of the Lord, he comes. And as the Son of God would do again one day as a humble baby, he comes not to a palace or some place of prominence, but to the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh. And he comes not to the strongest, bravest, most popular leader or soldier in the nation of Israel, but to a loser named Gideon, a fearful, grumbling, scaredy-cat hiding at the bottom of a wine press. This is the man who the angel of the Lord has come to commission as Israel's deliverer. And he does. He tells Gideon in verse 12, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then in verse 15, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. If we look back at Gideon at first... Gideon just seems to be oblivious to the identity of this intruding guest. Who is this strange person, he must be thinking, and what in the world is he talking about? Had Gideon missed something? He hadn't seen any indication that the Lord was suddenly with him. And he certainly didn't consider himself a mighty man of valor, sweating there in secrecy as a slave under the Midianites' oppression. He must have thought, this guy's either crazy or he's lying to me, and he's obviously out of touch with the severity of Israel's situation. So Gideon, you can hear in verse 13, he gets impatient with this angel of the Lord. And he says, 
Look in verse 13. He says, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You see, from Gideon's human, limited perspective, if Yahweh were truly with him, he wouldn't be hiding in a wine press. The Midianites, the Midianites wouldn't be ruling over the Israelites, and God's promises for peace and safety would have already been realized. That's the way things Gideon thinks ought to be. That's what Yahweh would do if he were really present. And Gideon wasn't totally incorrect in his assessment. I mean, God had given them over to the hand of Midian. And yeah, that did lead the Israelites into a season of turmoil and unrest and disorder. But what Gideon fails to remember was the reason for this unrest and disorder. Just before this encounter with Gideon at the winepress, God had once again graciously answered the cry of the disobedient Israelites through the words of a prophet. Look at Judges 6, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And remember, Gideon remembered that. And drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. See, God chose to discipline Israel because Israel chose to disobey God. And Gideon forgot this. Gideon forgot that his people's own contribution to the circumstances led them to what they were facing. God had been patient and long-suffering with his people. God himself had empowered the Israelites to drive out the enemies of the land. And as God, he had the right to set the terms of agreement. He had made very clear the conditions for which the Israelites would be permitted to acquire the promised land. God had promised the Israelites peace if they would just simply and fully obey his word. And while Yahweh was upholding his end of the agreement, the Israelites were not. Instead of fully heeding God's warnings, they failed to obey him. They allowed the Canaanites to dwell in the land with them, and therefore they invited the discipline of God upon themselves. And then, instead of repenting of their errors, they resented the discipline of the Lord. They accused him of making untrustworthy promises, and then they incorrectly concluded that we see from Gideon's own words, the Lord has forsaken us. I wonder if any of you here this morning just find yourself maybe in a similar season wondering if the Lord has forgotten maybe even forsaken you and I just think the Lord would say have you considered your obedience to the Lord we like Gideon and the Israelites we can so easily fail to remember the clear promises and simple expectations that God has revealed to us in his word we can get so used to making excuses for ourselves for not obeying God fully. Sure, we'd never fully abandon our love for God, but we're way too comfortable worshiping God alongside other things. We'll obey Him in all the big categories, making sure we don't murder or steal cars, but we can be all too comfortable ignoring the not-so-easily-detectable ones like anger, laziness, lust. Often, not, not always, hear me, not always, but often 
We don't experience the promises God has made to us the way we ought to in our lives because we haven't been willing to submit to the way the Lord thinks we ought to obey Him. And like Gideon, our failure to obey God can lead us to be so focused on the difficulty of our circumstances and so intimidated by the deficiencies of our character that we can't even see the deity standing right in front of our face. Our our disobedience can deceive us into denying the very presence of the Lord while standing in the very presence of the Lord. And Christian, if, if this is where you find yourself this morning, hear Jesus calling out to you, I am with you. Don't wait another second to turn to Christ in forgiveness. Ask God, even right now, to open your eyes so you can see Christ as he stands with you, offering you his peace and strength and a way forward through whatever season you find yourself in. He is with you, young moms and dads, as you lay down your life for your young children and sacrifice your time and energy and sleep at night and intimacy with your spouse and friendships you used to have with others. He's with you. Parents of teens, as you wrestle through the fears and joys and jealousies and failures that come with parenting the complicated and confusing life of teenagers, he is with you. Students, as you manage your school workload and your parents' rules and your siblings' stupidity and the ever-increasing temptations your growing independence affords you to be lured away by the fleeting pleasures of this world, he is with you, students. And parents with adult children, as you spend sleepless nights pleading with God for your children's safety and for them to make good choices and for them to receive the gift of salvation, he is with you. He's with you, singles, as you fight yet again to submit your desire for marriage and your fear of lifelong loneliness to the Lord, trusting that his plan for your life is good, even though it doesn't seem like it. He's with you, 30, 40, 50-year-olds, as you brace yourselves against the roaring rapids of life and cling to Christ amidst all the temptations to trust in other gods. They offer to provide rest and pleasure and security and contentment and peace for your soul. He's with you, 50 and 60 plus year olds, as you struggle to find time to care for the needs of your elderly aging parents and the needs of your overly busy adult children who always seem to need your help and your way too quickly growing up grandchildren, all the while having to manage your own slowly or maybe even rapidly declining energy level and health. Whatever season, you guys are in this morning. Resolve to obey the Lord in all the simple, easy, clear ways. And remember, as you do those simple, obedient actions, Yahweh is with you. As we continue on in verse 17, Gideon seems to be figuring out that this angel of the Lord might be someone worth paying a little more attention to. Let's read in verse 17. He says, to the angel of the Lord. If, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock 
and pour the broth over them. There's some weird things in the Bible like that kind of stuff. Uh, and so he did. <laughs> Gideon, so he did. Uh, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of a staff that was in his hand and touched the meat. <laughs> it's like, what is this guy doing? Touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then, I love the humor in the Bible, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Like, oh, okay, this guy must be for real. And then Gideon says, alas, O Lord God, Yahweh, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's been seeing him the whole time, but now he sees. And Gideon is faced with what he thinks ought to have been again. So again, Gideon's faced with this like thing that he thinks ought to have been, except that this time what Gideon thinks ought to have been was that Gideon is no longer being. That was really confusing. Let me try to say that again. So what I'm trying to say is Gideon all along has been thinking like of the way that things ought to be. But in this moment, after seeing the Lord, the, the thing that ought to have been is that Gideon should no longer be alive. Gideon knew that when someone comes face to face with the Lord, it's the last thing they do. He would have remembered God's words to Moses in Exodus 33. You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. Gideon would have been fully aware of this reality. He would have fully expected God to strike him dead on the spot. You can hear the grief in his voice. Alas, O oh Lord God, he was terrified. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on the book of Judges, I think helps us to understand why Gideon would have responded this way. He says this, We Western Christians have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. Really helpful thing to remember. Literally, moments ago, Gideon had accused the holy, all-powerful God of the universe, Yahweh himself, of forsaking Israel. He had exposed his own lack of allegiance. This wasn't just the nation of Israel now who doubted God. Gideon himself had failed to trust God to keep the promises he had made, and he had denied God literally to his face, and he was guilty. He knew he deserved to die. But, alas, Yahweh is loving gracious and slow to anger. The Lord does respond to Gideon, but it's not at all what Gideon expects. When the Lord speaks to him, he doesn't pronounce judgment on Gideon or punishment or wrath. All of those would have been appropriate. In other places in Scripture, God does respond this way to man's accusing, self-centered distrust of his sovereign faithfulness. But instead, this time, and surprisingly, Yahweh comforts and assures Gideon. Look in verse 23. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. You can just, just think, Gideon can't believe it. He had seen Yahweh. No one gets to see Yahweh. He had seen Yahweh. And instead of being annihilated, Yahweh offers him shalom, offers him peace. So what does Gideon do? In verse 24. Then Gideon picked his jaw up off the ground and built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace which is in Hebrew Yahweh Shalom so he calls the altar that Gideon's encounter that day with Yahweh Shalom under the terebinth tree it marked Gideon 
And the following chapters of Gideon's story show just how much of an effect that encounter had on the transformation of this whiny winepress worker to a mighty warrior and judge. But why is this story in the Bible? What does God want to communicate to us today in 2019 in Covington? Is that where we're at? Covington? Covington, Louisiana, Christ Community Church. What does it matter to us, this story? Well, like every story in the Bible, this story contributes to the telling of one single story, a greater story. In this story in Judges 6, God gives us insight into his character and his determination to one day restore peace to his people once and for all. And the angel of the Lord's proclamation of peace over Gideon hints at the long-awaited, yet coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says it like this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile or to restore to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God intends for you to experience the peace of the gospel today. In the midst of your chaos, in the brokenness of your relationships, in the weariness that you feel in your soul, you battle the sin in your heart, the suffering of your body, and the evil in the world around you. In the concerns about the health of your pastor and their family as they walk through this challenging season. Yahweh Shalom offers peace to you, Christ Community Church. And he offers that peace to you through his son, Jesus. For now, though, this peace, I just got to warn you, it, it's only going to be experienced in a limited, imperfect, not yet fully realized way. Gideon died one day. But Jesus promises us in John 14, says this with his own words. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Yahweh Shalom is with us. As we hope in God's protection. As we trust in his provision. As we walk through whatever season we find ourselves in this morning. And also remember, tem temptation to be anxious is coming. It's not already sitting with you in your life. It's coming. And that's why I think it's helpful when we're tempted to be anxious to remember another passage on peace. In Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, Paul reminded us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, to Yahweh. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One day, our hearts and minds, they won't need to be guarded. Yahweh Shalom will return, and he will turn everything back to the way it was ought to be. Everything will be brought back to order. Harmony will be restored. Our souls will finally be at rest, and each of us will be fully satisfied in the presence of God simply enjoying him and the world he created without anxiety or worry or sin or suffering. I long for that day. I know your pastor, because he 
who's my pastor. He longs for that day for himself and for you. But until that day, let's just pray, Lord, Lord, until that day, until the day, Lord, where we get to see you face to face, until the day where our hope is in you is finally realized, Lord, we, we ask you to guard our hearts and minds, to help us to fully obey you in all that you call us to do, in all the simple ways, the clear ways in Scripture. Help us to obey you. Give us eyes to see. See the gift of your salvation, to see the peace that you offer us. Lord, help us always to remember Christ is with us. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray that this word would bear fruit into all of our lives. Help us to live this week in light of it. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand and close our time this morning by singing to one another. Shall we?